turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. As we approach God's word, we approach the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. And uh, as we have just sung, we need the Holy Spirit to bring this word to life for us, to illuminate our hearts. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we approach God's word. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning. Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, convict us of sin, fuel our faith in Christ, and motivate our obedience. Lord, I pray that you would be honored in all things. Lord, I pray that you would give me grace to be faithful to your word and faithful to Uh, to the brothers and sisters who are assembled here, Lord, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to look at uh, quite a bit of scripture this morning, but to begin, I'd like us just to read Genesis 6, starting in verse 9, and then to the end of this chapter, and we will go from there. So let's read together Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you. 
and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. There are things in this passage that cause difficulty for people. Oftentimes, we'll hear the, uh, the scientific difficulties with the facts of the flood and this passage. And uh, I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time on science this morning, but I would love to offer if you would like to have a conversation about uh, science and the flood. I'm not a scientist, I'm a pastor, but um, if those are questions that you wrestle with, I would love to talk with you about them. Um, as difficult as some of those questions can be, and as much difficulty as they cause people, I think the most difficult thing that we have to deal with when it comes to Genesis 6 is the fact that we see here an incredible, powerful display of the judgment of God. There's no way around it. There's no candy coating it. We see here the judgment of God. And it's not popular to talk about the judgment of God. In our flesh, we don't like a God like that. We want just to be accepted. We want to be able to have whatever we want. We want a God who's just a big teddy bear in the sky, who lets us do what we want to do. We don't want a God that would judge. We don't want a God that would condemn the unrighteous. But what we see in Genesis 6 is a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished. A God who takes sin seriously. A God who judges wickedness. I think the reason why it's so offensive to our flesh that, we, that God is a God of judgment, that God would judge sin, is because we think too highly of ourselves. Think about it. If we think really highly of ourselves, if we think we're basically good people, well then, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for God to judge. How dare he? It's not right for God to judge, to bring, to bring me to death when I'm a good person. That's not right. Well, you're right, except you think too highly of yourself. I think too highly of myself when we think of ourselves as not deserving of God's judgment. The fact of the matter is, we all deserve God's judgment. We are all sinners. We have all rebelled against the almighty, holy creator, God. And God's judgment, while we might not like it, while it's not popular to talk about, is exactly what we deserve. The good news of this passage in the face of God's judgment, in the face of the reality that God does not let the guilty go unpunished, the good news of Genesis 6 and 7 is that what we see in this passage, the message of this passage is that God saves the righteous through judgment. God saves the righteous through judgment. We see in this passage the judgment of God, but we also see the salvation of God. So what I'd like to do is walk through this passage. We're going to walk through Genesis 6 and walk through Genesis 7 and see how what God records here in these verses, uh, how it applies to us today. 
So let's go ahead and walk through this scene. The first thing we see in this passage in what we've just read is that God announces judgment and salvation. In chapter 7, what we see is God then judges and saves. So in chapter 6, he announces judgment and salvation. And in chapter 7, God judges and saves. So as we come to this passage, this passage begins by drawing our attention to Noah. And at this point in Genesis, what we know about Noah is, first of all, that he was a descendant of Adam in the line of Seth. And we also know that he had found favor with God. We saw that last week in the early part of chapter 6. As we turn to this passage, what the author wants us to know is that Noah was righteous and blameless. Righteous, that word means a couple of things. One, it means Noah was right with God, but it also means that Noah did right things. It, had, it has these two elements. God was right with God, and he did right things. We also see in this passage that Noah is described as having walked with God. Now, you might remember that this was also true of Noah's great-grandfather, Enoch. We saw that in chapter 5. Enoch walked with God. And we saw something important there when we talk about Enoch that applies to Noah as well. And that is that walking with God begins with relationship that leads to righteousness. Just like that was true with Enoch, the same thing is true for Noah. It begins with, walking with God begins with relationship and it leads to righteousness. And so it's very important that we recognize uh, in this passage that when it says that Noah was right with God and that he did right things, the first thing we need to understand is that Noah did not make himself right with God. It, was, it flowed from the fact, as uh, verse 8 says, that Noah had the favor of God, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't make himself right with God. He received, he inherited God's, God's righteousness by faith. And we'll see his faith, the evidence of his faith, as the passage continues. In contrast to Noah and his righteous character is the entire rest of the world. The whole planet filled with humanity that the text says was corrupt, wicked. Humanity made in the image of God, was supposed to fill the earth with God's glory. Fill the earth with little reflectors of God. But instead, what we have when we come to Genesis 6 is the earth filled with violence. And so God tells Noah, in the face of this widespread wickedness, the the, the wickedness that multiplied as humanity multiplied across the face of the earth. In the face of this corruption, wickedness, how they have ruined themselves and ruined the world, God tells Noah what he's going to do about it. He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. He's going to give wicked humanity exactly what they deserve. He's going to destroy them. This word destroy is actually a play on the word corruption. Uh, we could put it this way. 
God, it's essentially as if God is saying, they ruined the world and they ruined themselves, and so the punishment is going to fit the crime. I am going to ruin them. So then uh, Moses tells us that God, after he has told Noah that this is going to happen, that he's going to destroy the earth, he gives Noah a command. He tells him to build an ark, a big box, a big structure. So build this ark, build this structure. Uh, it's supposed to be a very large structure. It's somewhere between 450 and 500 feet long, um, uh, 45 to 50 feet tall, uh, 75 to 80 feet wide, uh, depending on uh, who you ask about what a cubit is. Uh, but we're talking big. I mean, we're talking about a football field and a half of length, a massive structure. The structure was to have three different levels with a lot of different compartments, and he needed to take this box, this ark, this building, and he needed to seal it really well on the inside, seal it really well on the outside, roof on top, door on the side. So, but why? What is, why is God telling him to build this massive structure with all of these compartments? Why is he telling him to uh, do this? And what does it have to do with this determination that God has just made about what he's going to do on earth? Well, he says in verse 17, For, because I'm going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. So God was going to bring judgment upon the world, and his judgment was going to come in the form of a flood that would destroy every living thing. God's judgment would come in the form of a flood, and God's salvation would come in the form of an ark. It would be God's way of salvation for not only Noah and his family, but also to preserve the animals that were on the earth. To every kind of animal that was uh, either a bird or a land animal. God would bring salvation. He would preserve these people and these animals by means of an ark. And he would destroy every other living thing on the face of the earth with his judgment in the form of a flood. Now, God had a special purpose for Noah. We see that in, in verse 18 as he says, I will establish my covenant with you. And we're going to look at that uh, next week. And so uh, if you want to know more about the covenant with Noah, we'll look at that as we come to chapter, uh, chapters 8 and 9. But what we need to see uh, fundamentally is that God announces his judgment in the form of a flood, his salvation in the form of an ark. Uh, one other thing about that word ark, it's really significant that that word is used because it's only used in two different places in Scripture. One is here in the story of Noah. But the other is when Moses' mother was trying to protect her son from the command of Pharaoh to destroy all the Hebrew uh, newborn sons. She built, and the word is an ark, it's translated basket, but it's the same word here. And how amazing is it as Moses is pinning Genesis that he looks back on this event in, in Noah's life, and he uses this same word. Just like one day, God would preserve Moses' life through waters, here he is providing salvation and preservation for Noah the same way. 
And by the way, if saving God's people's lives as they pass through water rings some bells about something else that happens in Moses' life, you're on the right track. There's echoes here of God's saving work that he does time and time again. So God announces his judgment in the form of a flood. He announces his salvation and provides a way of salvation in the form of an ark. And what we see is that Noah, as he heard God's word, believed God's word. He had faith that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. How do we know that he had faith? The word isn't in the text. Well, in verse 22, we see that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And his obedience to God's command is the evidence of his faith. He believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, so he did all that God commanded him. Well, so next we come to chapter 7. And uh, let's go ahead and read, starting in verses 1 through 5. As we come to chapter 7, again, what God announces in chapter 6 comes to pass in chapter 7. Look at verse 1, and we'll read just 1 through 5 at this point. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your households, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So as we come to verse 1 of chapter 7, about a hundred years have passed. Between the last verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 7, there's about a hundred years. Imagine receiving instructions to undergo a massive construction project from God and then not hearing from him for a day and a week a month, not even for an annual review, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. Now, he had plenty to keep him busy, but imagine being told to do that and then not hearing from God for 100 years. But in this span of 100 years, Noah's faith did not waver. He finished the work that God gave him to do. And what we see as God then speaks again after a hundred years, he comes back to Noah and he's, he's telling him, okay, what I promised a hundred years ago, today is the day, or well, seven days from now, but the time has come. What I promised is going to be fulfilled. As he comes to Noah, he tells him in verse one, did you notice he said, I have seen you? Even though God had been silent, He was not absent. He didn't speak, but he was there. And this is not the main point of the passage, but I just think we have to remember that sometimes when it feels like God is distant, we have to remember that God is not absent. So Noah has built this ark, and God gives him a week's notice. That this is, uh, the time has come, 
he is going to, um, to send this judgment upon the earth that he had determined to send. Now, here there's a detail added that we didn't see in chapter 6, these seven pairs of clean animals. So not only is Noah to take uh, two of every kind of animal onto this ark, he's also to take seven pairs of clean animals. Well, what is that about? Well, we find after they exit the ark that some of these clean animals, well, some of them, like all the rest of them, will be used to preserve the, spe- the, uh, the kind of animal. But some of these will be used in sacrifice. They will be offered as burnt offerings of worship to Yahweh. Uh, and it's, it's also very likely that some of them would be used uh, for food uh, for the people coming off the ark as well. Uh, but what we see as he's specifically asking Noah to bring clean animals to make sacrifices, and, um, and even as we think about him possibly eating these, what we see here is a hint, a preview of the law of Moses that would come one day, where God would establish his covenant with the nation of Israel, and he would give instructions for them about eating clean animals rather than unclean animals. And so we have this, these uh, sort of foundations of some of the things that we'll see later in Scripture. So God announces his judgment and salvation, and then he speaks again and tells Noah the time has come, gives him a week notice, a week's notice, and then the floods start to come. So read with me, starting in verse 6 and to the end of the chapter. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and their three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out 
every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God did exactly what he said he would do. He brought judgment upon the earth and everything, everything that had life in it on the earth died. He brought judgment in the form of the flood, but he brought salvation in the form of the ark. And did you notice as they entered the ark, it was the Lord that shut them in. They were saved at the hand of Yahweh. He saved their lives. It was his way of salvation that kept them safe through his judgment upon the earth. As this text unfolds, we find that God's judgment upon the earth is really a reversal of what he did in creation. We saw a little bit of that last week. God essentially decreates the world in the, way that, in, in the opposite of the way that he created the world. What we saw whenever God created the world is that it, he created by starting with chaos and bringing that chaos into order. As God judges the world, he takes a world in order and he throws it into chaos. A chaotic, catastrophic, watery judgment. Reversing the pattern that he had made in creation. Not only that, we see this water above coming down, water below coming up. And it's a picture of the reversal of what happened on the second day as God separated the waters from above and the waters from below. God reverses that in his judgment upon the earth as waters come from above and below and destroy the world. Not only that, but on the third day of creation, God separated the water from the dry ground. We see a reversal of this as God takes the water and he covers the dry ground with this water. And, of course, we see every living thing with the breath of life in it being destroyed. A reversal of what God did in the fifth and sixth days of creation. God brings judgment on the earth and reverses the blessing that was his creation. But notice verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. Even as he brought judgment upon the earth, he was faithful to do exactly what he said he would do and preserve the life of those who trusted in his way of salvation. So as we look at Genesis 6 and 7, we see God's judgment and we see God's salvation. And I believe that we have, there are three things that we must understand from this passage today. Three ways that this passage applies to us. First, God's judgment is coming. 
Now, we saw in this passage, the first thing, God announces his judgment, and then he carries it out. But we need to recognize in our day, God's judgment is coming. We see a demonstration here in Genesis 6 and 7, as I said, that God will not let the wicked go unpunished. But we have to recognize also that this was not a once and for all dealing with sin. You know, Noah brought a lot with him on the ark. Unfortunately, one of the things he brought with him onto the ark was sin. He didn't leave it behind. He carried it with him in his heart. And his sons, and his wife, and his wife's son, uh, his son's wives, they carried sin with them into the ark. And what we see as they exit the ark and start to multiply across the earth again is the exact same thing that happened before happens again. Humanity multiplies, and along with them, sin multiplies across the face of the earth. It's still true that God will not let the wicked go unpunished. But what we need to realize is that that the final decisive judgment of God is still to come. It's still in the future. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. As we are applying this passage of the Old Testament, um, my aim is to apply this passage in the same way that the authors of the New Testament apply this passage. And so I want to highlight this passage in Luke chapter 17. Let's read starting in verse 26. Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Uh, You might remember or see a parallel here. Jesus uses the same two examples from the Old Testament of Noah and Lot. the ancient world with Noah, Sodom, and Gomorrah, as Peter and Jude did um, in the passages we looked at last week. But what we see here is the point that Jesus is making is that in those days leading up to the flood, life was normal. There was no alarm bell. There was no doom and gloom. It was just normal life. They were getting married. They were making long-term plans. They didn't expect that tomorrow the earth was going to end. They were marrying, they were making long-term plans, they were eating, they were drinking. Life as normal, buying and selling. And Jesus is making the point here that when the final judgment comes, because the final judgment is going to come when Jesus returns. He is going to come a second time to judge the living and the dead. It will be the final, decisive, once and for all judgment upon the earth. And when he comes, before he comes, he says, this is how it's going to be. Life as normal. No warning, and then all of a sudden, destruction. 
And this should cause us to have an incredible sense of urgency. Because there is no time to wait. There's no time to mess around. There's no time to drag our feet. It's not like one day, uh, all of a sudden, there's going to be a, a, a warning siren. Like, okay, now I'm going to get my life all figured out. Now I'm going to, uh, to deal with this. I had been just, you know, living and being married and getting married and eating and drinking. Life is normal. But okay, okay, I'll finally get. Jesus says that's not how it works. He says normal life and then sudden destruction. And what we need to recognize, and we saw this truth last week, is that until that day comes, as long as today is still today, as long as we are still awaiting the coming of Christ, that is God's patience. He is waiting so that more people would repent. If you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, God is giving you the chance today, and you're not promised tomorrow. He is giving you the chance today to repent of your sins and to place your faith in his way of salvation. You don't have tomorrow promised. There is no way that we can be waiting and messing around with God's coming judgment. We are not promised tomorrow. We must repent while today is still today. Receive God's patience. Receive God's mercy He is waiting to judge so that more people would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And for those of us who who have trusted in God's way of salvation, for those of us who that day is not going to surprise us like a thief, but we are awaiting that day because it's a day of salvation for us, we need to realize that right now there is an urgency to preach the gospel. Noah in uh, Peter is called a herald of righteousness. And just like Noah was a herald, a preacher of righteousness in his day, so we who know God's way of salvation are to be heralds. And we are not guaranteed tomorrow either. God is waiting today so that no one would have to perish, so that more and more people would receive his salvation and not have to undergo judgment. And it's up to us as heralds of righteousness to get the word to them that the way of salvation has come, the door of the ark is open, and anyone who wants to trust in God's way of salvation can escape judgment, but there's only one way. And we should have a sense of urgency about this reality that God's judgment is coming. We can't just live as if we will always have tomorrow. So, point number one from this passage, God's judgment is coming. The second is that God has provided only one way of salvation. God has provided only one way of salvation. Of salvation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. At Noah's time, God's judgment was coming in the form of the flood. And he provided only one way of salvation, the ark. Well, we have just established God's judgment is coming in our day as well. 
But the good news is that God has provided a way of salvation. But just like in the days of Noah, he has provided only one way. Now, as we come to 1 Peter 3, um, there are some details in the passage that we're about to read that are difficult. And uh, we don't have time to get into all of the specifics in here. But the reason why I want us to read this passage is because Peter, in this chapter, sees Noah and the judgment of his day and the salvation that God made in his day. He sees the story of Noah and the flood as a picture of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And so look with me at 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In Noah's day, God's judgment, his judgment of death, came upon the world in the form of the flood. What we need to realize is that at the cross, God's judgment of death came upon Jesus. The judgment that we deserve for our sin was given to Jesus at the cross. And there is only one way that we can pass safely through the judgment of God. And it is if we are in Christ. The Bible says that when we trust in Christ, we are united to him in his death and his resurrection. Because Jesus died for us, if we are in Christ, we can pass safely through the judgment of death that Jesus took for us, and we can come out to the other side in his resurrection, just like Noah and his family passed through the waters of God's judgment and came out safely into life on the other side. If we enter Christ, if we trust in Jesus, in his death, we pass safely through God's judgment that fell on Jesus so that it would not fall on those who are in Christ. And we can pass safely through to the other side. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the way of salvation. He is the way that God has given for us to pass safely through his judgment. And in order to receive his gift of salvation, in order to be saved and to be preserved through God's judgment, all we have to do is to believe, to trust in Jesus to not look for some other way, to not try and go to higher ground, to not try and trust in our own ways and our own intuition, but to trust in God's one way of salvation, Jesus Christ. 
So if you have never trusted in Jesus, if you have never placed your faith in him as the only way that you can escape the judgment of God, I implore you, I beg you today, trust in Jesus. He is the only way of salvation. Because he died, we can have our sins forgiven. Because he rose again, we can pass safely into eternal life. Because he took the judgment of God for us, we don't ever have to experience the judgment that is coming. Notice also that Peter mentions here that baptism is a picture of this. So he sees here a picture in Noah and the flood of baptism. It's not an accident that baptism is a picture of burial through water. Just like Noah and his family passed through water and came out safely on the other side, baptism is a picture of how if we're in Christ, we can pass through the waters of judgment safely because we're in Christ. And we can come out the other side in Jesus' resurrection. It's a picture about how Jesus saves through judgment. And so I would encourage you, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you have believed in him as the only way of salvation, but you've never been baptized, I would encourage you uh, today, come talk to me, and we can uh, get a time on the calendar when you can be baptized. Because in baptism, you make your faith public. You declare, I have trusted in Jesus as the only way of salvation. And I believe that because I am in him, Jesus took the, ju- the judgment of God so I don't have to. And Jesus has given me eternal life because of my faith in him. It's a way for you to be a herald of righteousness, just like we saw in, uh, it, that Noah is, for you to declare the gospel. So I would encourage you, if you've never been baptized, but you trust in Jesus, uh, be baptized. Uh, let this picture of the gospel uh, be something that you claim that you can follow in obedience to. So God's judgment is coming. God has provided only one way of salvation. And the last thing we need to see from this passage is that righteousness comes by faith. I told you the main thing I see in this passage is that God saves the righteous through judgment. And and we saw that. God saved in the form of the ark. He saved through his judgment as they passed safely through the flood that was his form of judgment. And we saw who he saved, Noah, who is described as righteous. Well, what we need to understand is that righteousness comes by faith. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Remember, I said that when the text says that Noah is righteous, it means two things. One, that he is right with God. And that he did right things. And there are, there are these two aspects. And what we, uh, what we uh, need to understand is if we get those mixed up, 
we can get confused about what the Bible teaches about these two aspects. And so let's look, uh, just based on this verse, about what the Bible teaches about these two aspects of righteousness. Because the main point is that righteousness comes by faith. Noah was right with God, but he did not make himself right with God. He wasn't right with God because of his performance, just as uh, as we sang a moment ago, he wasn't right because of the list of sins that he hadn't done. What this verse tells us is that Noah was righteous by faith. He was made right with God by faith, not anything that he did. He was, this text says, an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He inherited God's righteousness not because he deserved it, but because he trusted in God. And so I would ask you, as we recognize this, that this is the only way to be right with God. This is the only way to be, uh, to, to be described the same way that Noah is, as a righteous person, as, as the kind of person who, who got in the ark, who was saved, who was in the way of salvation. The only way that we can be made right is by faith, not by our performance. And so where are you looking for your validation? As you seek to be right with God, as you desire to have a right relationship with God, where are you looking for your validation? Is it in yourself or is it in God? Is it in your performance or is, or is it faith in God and what Jesus has done for you through his death and resurrection? Where are you looking for your approval from God? What are you staking your assurance on? The Bible teaches that the only way that we can be right with God is through faith. It was true in Noah's day. It's been true all throughout history, and it's just as true today. The only way that we can be right with God is through faith in him. We also need to understand that real faith walks. We saw Noah walked with God, just like Enoch walked with God. Faith leads to right things, right deeds. And so we have to see this in this passage. This is, the, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, that it was by faith that Noah constructed an ark. He had faith that God was going to do what God said he was going to do, and that was proven by the fact that he constructed the ark. Now, it wasn't his works that saved him. It was his faith in God that saved him. But his faith led to works. It led to the practical life works of constructing this ark, of obeying God. If he hadn't obeyed, it would have demonstrated that he didn't really trust God. God says, hey, I'm going to flood the earth, so build this ark. If he hadn't constructed it, it would have proven he really didn't take God's word seriously. It's the evidence of faith. The works are the evidence of Faith. Faith always leads to obedience. In James chapter 2, James says, I will show you my faith by my works. True faith always works out into practical righteousness, good works. So let me give you some examples of what this looks like, of how faith manifest itself is evidenced by works if i believe 
Jesus can forgive me every sin, then I'll have no problem admitting my sinfulness. On the other hand, if I am not willing to admit my sinfulness, one possible explanation is I don't really believe that Jesus can forgive. I don't really believe that Jesus is capable of covering. But if I really believe that, that Jesus can really do what he says he's going to do, if I have faith, then I'll have no problem admitting my sin. Another example, if I believe that Jesus has saved me from judgment and given me new life, then I'll get baptized. It's a step of obedience that is a demonstration of faith. The act of obedience isn't what saves you. It's not your actions, your works, your performance, your obedience that saves you. But it's evidence of faith. If I really believe that I've died with Christ and I've been raised with him, if I really believe that, I've, uh, that Jesus has saved me, then I'll be baptized. Jesus said to. If I believe Jesus has given me every spiritual blessing, if I really believe that, then I'll be content. And when I see discontent in my heart, it might just be that I haven't really believed, I haven't really trusted that truth of Scripture that in Christ we have everything we could possibly ever need. If I believe that Jesus has given me total acceptance, then I won't go running to all sorts of different empty wells to try and find acceptance. And if I am constantly looking for acceptance through uh, through sexual immorality or through uh, some sort of other form of, uh, of running for that. It might be because that's betraying in my heart that I don't really believe, I don't really trust that Jesus has accepted me in him. If I believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord, then I can be free to love my enemies. But if I am holding a grudge, if I am unforgiving, it might be because I don't really believe that God is the just God who will, uh, who, who will judge unrighteousness in his time and who will handle that. If I'm taking matters into my own hands and trying to hold on to that for myself, it reveals that I am not believing the truth of Scripture, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. One last example. If I believe judgment is coming, and Jesus is the only way of salvation, I'll share the gospel. That faith, that belief that God really is going to do what he says he's going to do should lead to obedience. And if we are not doing that, that one possible explanation of that is that we might not really believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So let me just ask you, I gave you some examples, but what does your walk say about what you believe? As you look at your life, what does your walk say about what you believe? Because whatever, in whatever way you're not obeying, the question, and this is key, the question is not just, how do I do better? Okay, I'm disobeying here. What's, what's my steps? What do I need to do to fix it, to get better? No, the question may not be, okay, how do I get better? No, the question is this, what promise do I need to believe? What is it that Jesus has done for me that I haven't really trusted in? What is it that God says in his word that I am not living in the good of? It, 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 what we see is that obedience, righteousness, those things are an overflow of faith 
And so in whatever way that we are uh, not obeying, we need to ask, what is it, what are the promises of Scripture that God has given us that I need to cling to, that I need to trust in and believe? So we see in this passage that God saves the righteous through judgment. And that righteousness comes by faith. We're not right with God because of our obedience. We're not saved from God's judgment because of how good we are or how right we are in and of ourselves. It only comes by faith. And the the fact of the matter is God's judgment is coming, but he has provided one way of salvation, and that comes through faith. So trust, trust in Jesus. Believe that he can do what he said he can do. And what he said he can do is forgive every single one of your sins. What he said is that he can give you new life and give you eternal life with him forever. And so trust this Christ. He is the only way of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would see the beauty of your word, the truthfulness of what you have given us. Lord, I pray that we would see that, Lord, you take sin seriously, that you will not let the guilty go unpunished. And Lord, I pray that we would see that that punishment on Jesus and anyone who trusts in him can pass safely through your judgment if we trust in Jesus as the way of salvation or I pray that no one in here would put off trusting in Jesus that no one would put off uh, turning away from sin and turning to your way of salvation Lord, I pray that we would experience what it's like to be right with you, not because of how good we are, but because of faith, because of trusting in you, trusting in your way of salvation, trusting in your grace. I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith, and that that faith would overflow into obedience that can only be explained by your grace at work in our hearts by your gospel taking root in our souls. Lord, I pray that the world would see a difference in us because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.